0: our consideration on the back page of your bulletin and this is from Lewisbury Chafer out of his book True Evangelism and he talks about false methods of evangelism false methods of evangelism and he writes again the false or undue emphasis on methods is disclosed by the imperative demand for some public action in connection with conversion such as standing or going forward in a meeting Great confusion has been wrought by the intrusion of such public acts into the condition for salvation, thereby making salvation seem to be by faith in Christ plus a supposedly uh, uh, meritus, okay, thank you, public act. And he, and he makes a point wow. there. He makes a point there. And people are looking for some response it's almost like show me <laughs> that you're saved uh, you got to show tears right uh, what do you got to do what if I just believed and I just told you I believe the gospel isn't that simple enough why do you have to do some act and, and all across Christendom they're looking for an act you've got to show it and you know what that does It starts the whole thing of works salvationism. You start acting at the very beginning, and some people are still acting today. And some of them should get a Hollywood performance, maybe an Oscar, (laughs) (laughs) because they're doing a well of a job acting. And it's really sad (laughs) that it happens that way. All right, we're on our series of Glory to Glory, and we're going to talk today about the insufficiency of the old covenant for glory that the old covenant was insufficient for glory. We used to sing uh, when we were growing up in our church, we had a little um, choir, the little tots choir, and we used to sing this song, I feel all right, there's no condemnation. I feel all right, there's no condemnation. I feel all right, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation in my heart today. There's no condemnation in my heart. Do you know Israel probably could not have sang that? they couldn't have sang that song the ministry that they were under of law was a ministry of condemnation it really showed you all it could do was tell you how far you were falling short you're falling short you're falling short and you'll see it did not have the ability to do what the ministry of the Spirit can do. There was a quality of glory you're going to see that came from that ministry. But it was a glory that did not really reflect the kind of glory that you and I can reflect today. That, At our best, when the Holy Spirit is actually doing the work, the amount of opinion that is reflected from the believer today (laughs) and like anything any Old Testament saint could ever reflect it, Ever. And it ain't even close. It ain't even close. And so Paul is talking to the Corinthians in Corinth, and he's talking to them about the ministry that he's been given charge of and how different it was for the, from the ministry that came before it. This is really Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3 is a great dispensational scripture. It shows you a clear delineation between what God did in the Old Testament with the Old Testament saints and what he's doing to believers today. I, for the life of me, cannot fathom in my mind how people do not see this. It's just, it's unfathomable to me that this is so clear. I've often thought you can write a book a thousand and one ways as to why there's a distinction between the Old and New Testament and what God is doing to get today versus what he did before? It's so clear over and over and over and over again and so clear that you begin to wonder, anyone who doesn't see this, this might just be a spiritual issue. Right? Can't do anything to help you unless the Holy Spirit shows you. Because the facts are certainly there for everyone to see. And we'll see it tonight. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to be able to look at these things and grateful that as believers today in this dispensation of grace that we've been given something completely better and new. Not because we're better, but because of what you are showing forth at this time. And that those Old Testament saints had what was was shadows and types of what was to come. But we are really living out today the reality of what you really wanted to accomplish. And we're so thankful. All of that is on the basis of the work that the Son did on our behalf. It's not a result of anything that we've done. It's totally by grace. And we're thankful for that. And your son said we're Amen. And so we pick it up at verse three, uh, 6 of chapter 3 of uh, 2 Corinthians. And so Paul is talking about this ministry. And just as a backdrop to this, you see that um, at Corinth, there were these ministers. And they were... Um, hawking the word of God for profit, and so you have you see this today. And what's interesting to me is where, when you get into the Old Testament, it's easier to do that. It's easier to do that where you can use the Old Testament in a wrong way, and so you could see that, for example, in Second Timothy or First Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy you go over in there in the Ephesus and and that you charge them to stop teaching a different kind of Old Testament doctrine. What do they do? They take the Old Testament and they misuse it for their own purposes. And that's what was happening here at Corinth. And so you had these bad actors who were misusing the Old Testament. And so they were trying to put pressure on the Apostle Paul to do it. Nothing's new under the sun, right? You have people today who are misusing the Old Testament. They take the Old Testament and they misuse it and try to use it for practice. They try to use it for practice. Uh, Tithing is a a good example of that. Uh, You tell people today that there is no tithing today, and I've seen people almost have a stroke. Stroke out. Uh, when you tell them that, they just they can't fathom in their mind that that's true. All right? And so they this misuse of the Old Testament for purposes that God didn't intend it. And so Paul's dealing with this, and notice at the end of ch- the second chapter in verse uh, 17 what he says. He says, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. That word corrupt is to hawk they are hawking the word of God for profit. And how do you hawk the word of God? It's the ideal that you take something and you're adding to it. You're adding something to it. It's like if you had snake oil, uh, right? And you're adding something to it in order to make it go further. And you're doing it for your own purposes. But as of sincerity and as of God and the sight of God speak we in Christ. So notice then he comes down into chapter uh, three and we'll read down to from one down through verse six. Do we begin to commend ourselves? Or need we as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For so much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. As such, trust we have, we have through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Who has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter. And so, I mean, here you see, it's, it's very clear that there's something different that is going on here. Um, there are no apostles today. Can, can I let you know that? I, I hope that somebody's not disappointed in here that you thought you were an apostle. I don't want to say that too loud. Some people might fall out. Uh, we're in, under a completely different kind of covenant or testament. None of the letter, uh, so he says in verse 6, Uh, Not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit giveth life. Now I want you to know, just as an aside here in verse 6, because as we work on getting the seminary going, as we talked about doing, some people use this to say you should never go to seminary. Because the letter killeth. (laughs) But the spirit gives life. And that you don't need to learn anything. Just get up there and the Holy Spirit's gonna speak through you. And it pretty much shows <laughs> those people who have done that, that, that that's the case. <laughs> um, but notice, he says, so this idea of this minister uh, in verse six, that um, the, uh, the minister of a new covenant. And so this idea of minister, this word minister, if you do a New Testament, um, study on it it's a really interesting word now this word is the Uh but there's several words for ministry you have uh, latreo you have hupertase uh, you have several different words for ministry in the new testament but this one is service as seen in activity and so paul sees himself as this minister in the new testament of a new kind of covenant and so notice this word for new covenant. I mean, you see this talked about in several places. Uh, look at, let's look at Hebrews 9, 15 first. I don't know how many times scripture can say that we're under a new covenant for people to be able to understand. We are under a new covenant. <laughs> I don't know how much clearer it can get. Um, now, in uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. Now notice, um, we'll start with verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes of a heifer and the sprinkling of the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more should the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse fifteen, and for this cause he is the mediator of a new covenant, a new covenant, uh, or really you could say testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an inher- of the internal inheritance and actually he tells you, um, I think it 's earlier that we, we're, uh, we have this New Testament. Uh, I think it's actually in chapter 8 uh, and that it's based in verse 6, notice he says but now he has in uh, Hebrews 8, 6 has a t- obtained a more excellent ministry by how much he is the mediator of a better covenant which is established upon the basis of what? Better promises. And so you have the superlative degree there that this is, you have this covenant, this is such such, so much better. So much better. And we sing the song that we have something better. And I don't think a lot of believers believe that. They're so busy. <laughs> and I understand why they do it. Because if you're unlearned and if you're unspiritual, you want to take things that are like childlike things because they're easy to explain. And to use those because when you get into the New Testament... You're dealing with things that really take being filled by the spirit to understand. And a lot of people don't. They really can't understand it because they don't have any kind of illumination to understand. it. You're dealing with abstract ideals as you talk about being in your position in Christ. Those are things that it's going to take you being filled by the spirit to understand. And so a lot of these things that you see in the Old Testament, they're they're child things. And so people want to play with little baby things. And I understand that. People don't want to grow up. They don't want to grow up spiritually. And that's a problem. But so Paul says that he was the minister of a new covenant. Now this word for new, uh, as it's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, is the word kynos, and it's a new kind of covenant. And so you have two different kind of words that is used for new in the New Testament. You have kynos, which is new in kind. Um, and then you have naos which pertains to that which has been in existence for a short time or recently, a or, or fresh kind of covenant. So it's kind of like if you go get a, a, a new car, right? You can get a new, a fresh car, right? right? Uh, brand new. You know, they say that the new car smell, right? But you, you can get a new car also and it's new and kind, right? This is a new kind of covenant that we're dealing with here. Paul says that he's dealing with here, and it's different from the First Testament that came before it. And so a covenant, as we see it used in Scripture, is between two or more persons, and it's a binding contract or agreement between two or more persons. And that's how you see it used in Scripture. Now, notice if you look back at uh, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15, and just as an illustration here, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15. Now Paul is talking to the uh, believers in uh, the Galatian churches. And notice in uh, Galatians chapter 3, he's talking about this covenant uh, that God had with the uh, nation of Israel. Let's get back and get uh, some context here in verse 11. But that no man is justified by law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live or go on living by faith, or really out from faith. And the law is not of faith. So it doesn't take faith to, uh, uh, it didn't take faith necessarily to uh, observe the Mosaic law. It doesn't take faith to observe any kind of law, really. And so law, you see it, it says don't do this, and it's pretty cut and dry. Faith is something a little different. Uh, but that no man is justified, uh, the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth these, uh, them shall live in them or by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And when he says us, don't put yourself in there because you weren't under law. He's talking to those in the church here who were under law. I wasn't under law, and I can prove to you I was never under law because I am a Gentile. And by the way, I found out, I guess it's been, came up, that that thing that I told you that I thought I was 1% Jew, well, they changed that. I'm not 1% Jew anymore, so I I was never under law. (laughs) (laughs) That shows you how crazy some of that stuff is, right? (laughs) It just changes. (laughs) But anyway, it says in Romans... When the Gentiles, which have known not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. No Gentile was ever under law. Ever. That's why they had the church, the first council of, in, in Acts 15, was to ask the questions, are the Gentiles under law? No Gentiles ever been under law. So he's not talking to you here. He's talking to the Jews in this church who were under law. And so, uh, being, uh, for if it is in in verse 13, um, excuse me, 14, where, where was I at? I got off. Christ, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak... After the manner of men, though it be a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man knows our ads. thereon. on until so you have this uh, idea of a covenant uh, um, that as you see it in Scripture. And so this is a new kind of covenant, a new kind of testament, unlike the one that, be- that came before it. It's better. And in, not only is it better, you have better promises that it's based upon. Not anywhere close to it. This commingling of the Old Testament and the New Testament has caused the majority of the confusion you're seeing in the church today. And so Paul was talking about this and he talked about this old covenant that it was. And he's going to tell you why and he's going to give you several reasons why this old covenant was insufficient. And it's not because of the covenant. It wasn't the covenant uh, that was the problem. And he's going to walk you through as to why, what the problem was uh, with the covenant. And going back to Second Corinthians chapter uh, 3 and verse 6. And we'll pick it up in um, verse 6. He says um, that who also was the, uh, has made us able ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter. This word not of the letters," I would really translate that not based upon what is written. And he's going back to the and he's going to tell you in verse seven to the, what was written on stones and what was written on stones. It was the the te- the Old Testament, the old covenant. And so notice he says in verse seven, uh, let's read down through verse seven, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills. But the spirit gives life. Now, we're going to come back to this, but let's look at, first of all, what he says, what was written. And so now if you drop down into verse 7, but if the administration of death written and engraved in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was done away. Now so this word uh, written in stones, uh, the word written is the act of writing or used to convey a message and so that's how this message from God was given to the, church, to the uh, children of Israel I'm saying church here the children of Israel and notice the idea it was engraved in stones and it looks at the fact that it was imprinted and describes uh, the writing how the writing took place on stone and the, the Hebrew word there actually has, has this idea that it, it left an impression it's kind of like on our typewriters as you used to be And I don't know people may not know what a typewriter is uh, today, but they used to have this instrument where you would hit the key and it would leave an impression. <laughs> and so God did that on stones. Now, notice this old covenant going back into verse six. He says it was insufficient because it was an administration of death. And so notice what he says, not of the letter, but of the spirit, because the letter kills the letter kills. And so you have a lot of people who are going around and they are observing Old Testament and they they are commingling it. And they're just putting themselves under law. And I, The thing is is that it's not just even the observic, observance of what we know the Ten Commandments to be. I think it's even more worse than that. Because you have all of these uses in the New Testament of these unauthorized uses of law. And what does that mean? Well, he, he takes it past the Ten Commandments. And you can see this like with the Talmud. They have added to the Mosaic Law. And they have all of these different rules they've come up with about what you can't do. Right? And a lot of it goes way beyond what God told them. And you can see that today. You can see it in the church. What did the Lord tell the Pharisees and the Sadducees? You have put your traditions above the word of God. And do you know people are doing that across this great country of ours today? Their traditions are more important to them than what they see the truth of scripture to say. And you can see it happening. And so, uh, but concerning the, the law itself, it kills, and that word for kill, there's several different, uh, see the Greek is just so exacting. They just tell you specifically what is being said. So there's a lot of death terms that are used in scripture. Now this word for death here, or to kill, it actually has the ideal, uh, it's the word um, apoktino, and it means to kill in any way whatsoever so as to put out of the way or to kill off, (laughs) Uh, to get rid of something. Uh, It's used in the spiritual sense um, of to put someone to death. Now let's look at it just as an example of that in Romans chapter 7 and verse 11. Um, And it's use of the sin nature and what the sin nature does. I think there's a correlation here because as as you try to live up to the Mosaic law or really any kind of law you come up with, your sin nature is going to rise up and it's going to cause you some problems. And you're not going to be able to accomplish it. And you're going to be frustrated. And then you're just going to try harder. And then you're going to get more frustrated. That's what the Mosaic law did. That's what any law does. Notice in Romans chapter 7. Paul talks about what happened. And I believe that he this happened to him. Back in the, uh, eighth, the ninth chapter of uh, acts after he's saved he has some problems and then he they they get him away from there he eventually ends up back in tarsus and in the 11th chapter of acts barnabas goes and finds him and that's where he finds him is in tarsus now i think this is the period where paul went back home after he was saved and he put himself back under law and this is what he found as a believer trying to live by law you're going to be frustrated Because you're not going to be able to do what you think you desire to do. And so notice he says here in verse um, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known uh, sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except that the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Isn't it something what the law does is kind of makes you hypersensitive? And we can understand this. Like with people, uh, you might think that you are addressed to the nines. Is that? Is that the, okay, I always get my metaphors mixed up. Or is it the tens? I don't know. Nines, okay. Nine and a half. Nine and a half. Somebody says something to you. Boy, look at that thing on you. And all of a sudden you say, like, what? What's wrong? Do you know that's what the law did so the law just held up like a mirror and said, look at you. You're falling short. And so notice, he says here, uh, I had not known it, but the law says thou shalt not cover it. Verse 8, but the sin nature, and I which end the sin nature taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. It's a fancy word for lust. For without law, and notice what he says here. This is significant here. Apart from any law, the sin nature is dead. Do you know what the sin nature needs to activate it? Law. Law. Apart from any law, the sin nature is dead. So, If God were looking to actually cause people to grow and mature, you couldn't use the Ten Commandments. You couldn't use the Old Covenant. It was incapable of doing that. Not because there was something wrong with it. There was something wrong with people. Verse 9, he says, for I was alive without law once, but when the commandment came, the sin nature revived and I died. See that process? bring in law the sin nature says okay let's play that's what happens with it the moment you bring in law the sin nature is aroused I'll give you an example I have uh, sometimes I burn gra- um, um, paper and stuff in a barrel there at our house and the fire goes out and just when I think it's going out I'm trying to stoke it again I do something that you probably shouldn't do don't try this at home kids mm-hmm. I get gasoline and I oh. throw it in there. Oh, no, 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 no. That <laughs> and what is? <laughs> <laughs> it's away from the house. But what happens? That fire comes alive, right? That fire comes alive. That process is what happens. It happens when you bring the law in reference to the sin nature. You're just it, it. You're bringing it to life. And so notice. And notice verse 10. And the commandment which I was ordained to life I found to be unto death for the sin nature taking a commandment, uh, taking uh, occasion by the commandment deceived me and see it, it slew me. Right? And so that idea of being able to have a connection with the Holy Spirit and to be able to experience God's quality of life snuck it right out. The moment you bring a law into the equation, all you're doing is just stoking your sin nature. That's all you're going to get from it. It doesn't have the capability of doing anything else. And, and And I would say to a lot of believers today, they will say, oh, well, I'm not under the Ten Commandments. Yeah, right, right. But you've got all of these other laws you keep adding to yourself, you see. And so notice... He says, the old covenant kills. It was an administration of death. That word for death is an, an, another death term there back in uh, verse 6 of 2 Corinthians th- 3. And it's the word thanatos. It's just an amazing thing that there is no question as to what God wanted to say in the original language. And I think we, it kind of blurs the distinction sometimes in the, uh, in the translations. But this word for death here is a totally different word. It's the word thanatos. And it looks at the point of time that death occurs. And so now it's looking at the idea of the snuffing out of any kind of spiritual life. And you see it used in that way of, um, of Adam in uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. And so the Old Testament was insufficient because it was engraved in stones. The Old Testament, well, Old Covenant was insufficient because it was an administration of death. And now he's going to say in verse 9, the old covenant was insufficient because it was a ministration of condemnation. It was a ministration of condemnation. You know, um, all it could do, if if you went around, what what was that uh, movie that uh, was made by the guy that I really don't like that much, but I do remember this movie, Liar, Liar, Jim Carrey, (laughs) right? just went around and all you did was you told everyone that you came in contact with the very truth about everything you saw about them how many people could take it right they couldn't all the the law was doing and all it, it had the capacity to do was show you here's the truth here's the truth now, this word for condemnation is an interesting word. This ministration of condemnation, it comes from the word crino. And in first and second Corinthians, you have a lot of uses of this word. And based upon what the Corinthians were, I could see why. But this word for crino, is a, the compound form of it is used 17 times in the New Testament. And it, it's the idea of it renders to render judgment. So what does the law do? It rendered judgment, right? Well, look at that. in First Corinthians chapter 11:23, as an ex- example. And you say, "But please show me mercy. There's a reason why this happened." <laughs> uh, First Corinthians 11:23. And it's used of uh, the believer at the, uh, uh um, is it 23, <coughs> Yeah, um, uh, Catacrino, <coughs> excuse me. Um, actually, is down in verse 32 of um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it's actually um, use of the Lord rendering judgment to the believer. Uh, And notice, when you you and I come to the Lordian table, one of the things that we do here, this is not just some ceremony we're partaking in. When you come to the Lordian table, what we're doing is that uh, we're partaking of this bread and this cup. And we're saying that we're keeping the unity of the body, that we're one in this body. And so what's important in that is that, verse 28, that when you come to the Lordian table, you examine yourself to make sure that you are keeping the unity of the body. So if there's any unconfessed sins, you don't have to get up and give a display of this before people. Just confess it right there in your seat. And so that's what he says here in verse 28, "...but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup." For he that eats and drinketh unworthily eats and drinketh. That word damnation is actually the word judgment. See, you have a lot of crino words here. And there, there's one right there. Um, and that word damnation actually is you, you're drinking uh, judgment to yourself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, verse 30, are many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. And so what was happening here is that the Corinthians were doing things they shouldn't have done and and God had to take some of them home. Verse 31. For if we should judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, and and here we have a um, uh, uh, continuous ideal here. When we are being judged, we are chastened of the Lord why that we should not be condemned with the world and so let's just say you're over here and you're pretending and you're saying oh I'm not people we can actually in our minds justify a lot of things and not see reality you can see the world is doing that now but when we say okay God yeah this is is the truth I did it you confess it but just to say you're over here and you say, oh, no, that ain't true. Now, God has to step in. And he has to judge you. <laughs> and so he says, and when we are being judged, and there's our word there for crino, uh it's actually this word, it's translated condemnation or condemned uh, in Second uh, um, Corinthians. And what's, what's the result of that? We are being chastened by the Lord. And why does the Lord chasten us? Why does he step in and say, hey, you need to stop this? Because he's not going to let you be condemned with the world. And if he let you continue to go on down that pathway, then he would have to judge you as he would the rest of the unsafe world. And he's not going to do that. So this idea of uh, uh, condemnation. So in, in Second Corinthians three uh, three nine, he says that the uh, the old covenant was a ministry of condemnation. And so you can see it's used, this form, the way that it's used there, it's uh, the passing of judgment upon one due to a falling short of a standard. And so judgment is passed, and all it could do is render the judgment. This is what you've you've done, this is the reality of it. I told, we were talking about this in class in the morning. this morning, is that all the law was, it was like a mirror. All the law is, is like a mirror. It just shows what's going on in front of it. It can't do anything about it. It just shows the facts. Now You might get up in the morning in front of the mirror and you don't like the results of it. Don't break the mirror. The mirror is just re- revealing what's in front of it. And that's what happened here under the law. And so it was a ministry. It was seen as a ministry of condemnation. The old covenant was insufficient because it had a fading glory. So that was a quality of a glory that was attached to it. But notice how that glory came about and notice what happened to it. Go back in the second Corinthians chapter three. And in verse seven. You see that there was a quality of glory. But if the administration of death written and engraved in stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away? And so the children of Israel, they, they and it looked, I would translate it more, the sons of Israel. They did not have an ability to behold the face of Moses. So as Moses came in contact with this, there was a glory that um, shone on his face. But it was a glory that faded away. But even with that glory, it says that notice here, they could not steadfastly behold. That word for steadfastly behold is they couldn't fix their eyes on it. And so there was a glory that came in contact with that came as a result of this covenant and this engraving of, uh, of stones. And they couldn't fix their eyes on Moses's face. And Moses did not want them to fix their eyes on so it. You can go back and look and Exodus. What he did is he put a veil over his face because the glory was fading away. And he did not want them to see the fading of this glory. Uh, now, it uh, is. Notice if you go back there in, in verse uh, 7, he says that uh, they could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses. So this word for faith, face, is uh, uh, as Moses had this um, glory, as it was shining from his face and as it was fading away, that, that uh, there, did, there was something that was happening with his countenance. And notice... Um, Moses for the glory of his countenance. And it's interesting here that he says countenance. The word countenance here is the appearance of the face of a man as it's impacted due to some inward or outward entity. Um, You can see that used in that way in the Old Testament. Um, uh, Best example of it, I guess, is Cain. When Cain uh, killed uh, Abel and, uh, or excuse me, before he killed him and they brought their sacrifices to God. And God asked Cain, why is your countenance so wroth? <laughs> right, that his, the outward appearance of his face reflected something was terribly wrong. And, uh, and you can see it used that way. But on the other side of it, uh, with Moses, there was a, an appearance of glory that impacted the outward view of his face. And so that glory, though, faded away. And he says, um, this glory, uh, which uh, he had, notice they could not sit it fastly, behold the face of uh, Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. Or really, that idea was to be done away. It was rendered inoperable. It was, not, it was just a temporary thing. It faded with time. And this is important because he's contrasting the old covenant and what little glory it had in comparison to the new covenant. And what we're going to see is that you and I can manifest a glory that doesn't fade away. And you say, well, I don't see it. I'm not radiating any light or anything. But do you know the glory that you manifest can be seen out? I think not only do people see it, I think that spirit beings see it. And you and I, we don't really pay that much attention to it, and and we'll see what it looks like. We don't really pay that much attention to it and don't really think it's that big of a deal. But what we're going to see is I think this is a big deal, as you see it from Scripture. Notice in verse 10. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excels. Verse 11. For if that which was done away was glorious, how much more that which remains is glorious. So that which was made glorious really is talking about this epistle that was engraven in stone. It had no glory. I really, you could say, it was not made to have glory that continued. It was a temporary thing. And so notice, by reason, and then notice he says, and he's contrasting it, not uh, from that glory to the glory that is in place today. By reason of the glory that excels, by reason of, or in part, the reason that that really didn't continue was because of the fact God had something better that He had planned, in which there was going to be an opportunity for a glory to be seen that didn't fade away. See that, word there, that phrase, the glory that excels? That excels actually looks at the fact of something that goes above and beyond to surpass, to be so extraordinary to go, actually that word, it goes beyond boundaries. So if this is the limits, this goes beyond the limits of what was possible under the old covenant. And you see that used, and what we're going to see as we continue to move forward is that we have a new covenant. And that covenant, as governed by the Holy Spirit, Causes you and I to be able to manifest a glory. And that glory does not fade. You and I should never ask in this life. What is our purpose for living? We are vessels here for God. To be used by him. To manifest his life in activity. And as you do it. There is a glory that is being manifested in how you conduct your everyday life. I really think the challenge is for believers is that, particularly in the midst of what we're in today, is as you're spiritual, you can have joy, you can have peace, you can have long suffering. It doesn't really matter about the circumstances of what we're going through. God is going to use you. He knew that we would be in these circumstances and he ordained you to be able to manifest glory at this time. The question is, can we get our mind right to allow the spirit to do his job? To manifest so that God's life can be seen out through us. And we're going to see that as we continue to move forward. As you look down, and we'll pick this up next week when we come back um, to speak, um, he goes in from uh, talking about that and he's going to go into talking about how Israel responded to that and how we have something completely better as we um, have come into this dispensation of grace. And we'll see that we have the ability to manifest glory. In a sustained fashion, and we'll see that hopefully the next time we speak. If we don't speak and the rapture occurs before then, you can ask the Lord about this as you go up in the rapture. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to be able to look at these things and grateful that as believers that we have the opportunity to be able to manifest Your quality of life as we are in these bodies and that we can do it in a sustained fashion and that we see that there's a glory that Moses had that faded away, but we have a glory that um, transitions from one quality to another quality of glory. And we're thankful, Father, that we have the ability to have that done through us as the Holy Spirit is able to work in us and to produce the life of your Son. And as that life is seen out, there is a glory that continues to excel from one quality to the next. And it's not because of us, it's certainly because of the power that you provide. And we're thankful for that in your Son's name we pray. Amen.